0: Day to you this day um, as we continue on this study this walkthrough of Lutheran worship uh, it's been a while since I've recorded the last video it's been a few weeks um, part of it is I got pretty sick last week and I didn't have much of a voice to record and just life has just been busy chaotic etc etc and so The last time I recorded, we had talked about, we had started the first half of the liturgy. We looked at the first half of the order of service as it is in our hymnal. Well, today we are going to be talking about the church here. And it seems weird to do that because you figured that we would go into the second half of the liturgy. Well, not really because it seems like that. But it works better to start here, go here first. And the reason is, is because as we talk, we're not really done with that first half of the service. And to, f- to understand it more, we're going to have to talk about the church year. Why are the scripture readings the way they are? Why are, what's the, why is, do we pray what we pray each, co- what decides the, the collect for each day in the church year? Um, what decides the, the hymn of the day and things like that. And by the way, and that also influences what's in the sermon. And by the way, we will talk about hymns and sermons in the next video. So that will be a video that, that will be one of the, um, the topics I did not get to get to in our in-person Bible study over this summer. So So there you see to the left of me, oops, over here. Um if you look right here, um you can see the the wheel of the church year. And so you can see there's the season after Pentecost and season of Okay, I have to tell you that this is probably not a Lutheran church year wheel, and I say that because there's this season of creation. We don't have that in the Lutheran Church. Missouri Senate, at least. So, just kind of, um, I don't know what that whole deal is there. Um, this might be a Methodist thing, maybe. I could be wrong. But, anyways, it, you get a general idea, though, that there is a cycle. And why do we have this church here? Because, well, we tie things to dates. And there are f- special days scattered throughout the year. Um, there's things like January 1st, that's New Year's, right? you have martin luther king day you have president's day washington's birthday lincoln's birthday um you have um the first day of spring you got halloween and by the way you also have these also little itty bitty celebrations that everybody has throughout the year and that's weddings and wedding anniversaries birthdays etc etc and so there are all slew of special days that are tied to people to events and things like that and so the church year follows that same thing and it's a way to teach to reinforce the primary teachings of scripture every single year so What you see on the screen right now is you see the feast day that is known as the Annunciation of the Lord. That is March 25th. The reason you see that up on the screen is because the reality is is that this date is very significant to the outline of the church year. And the reason is is because... um, we had to go all the way back to the sec the second century of the church. In the second century of the church, they were trying. There were those who were trying to calculate the crucifixion of Jesus and the birth date of Jesus. And so, one of the church fathers, and I can't remember the exact name of it. Somebody else that's martyred, and rem- I'd have to do quite a bit of digging to find the quote, but I know it. It was written by a church father in the second century, but he calculated. He came up with he came with the um, the myth or the hypothesis that Jesus was crucified on March twenty fifth, and there is a reason why he believed that, because and the reason is is because in the ancient in the for many Jewish sects. The first day of creation was March 25th and so this particular theologian believed wouldn't it be amazing if Jesus was crucified on the same date as the first day of creation on the anniversary of it and so then he took this a little bit farther And the reason is he took it a little bit farther is because there is a Jewish myth or Jewish um, superstition that great prophets died on the same date in which they were conceived so it was since it was believed that jesus was crucified and died and buried on march 25th it was believed that he was also conceived on march 25th now you, this influences a lot so march 25th becomes the annunciation of the lord that event that is depicted in in luke chapter 2 or Luke chapter 1, sorry, um, when the angel Gabriel visits Mary to tell her that she is pregnant with Jesus. And in the course of the conversation, she tells her that her cousin Elizabeth, in her old age, is pregnant with John the Baptist. Now, and that is in the sixth month, so naturally three months from March 25th is june 24th well i know it's just a day short of three months right but three months later the church celebrates what is known as the nativity of john the baptist on june 24th and right around that same time period uh is the visitation of the lord of mary and so this is when mary came to visit elizabeth While she was pregnant with John, the one-year lectionary and the three-year lectionary have different dates, and we're going to get to that lectionary thing later. But there are there are two common dates for the visitation of our Lord. One is May twenty-fifth, and the other one I believe is July second. Um, so all right, so March, so June twenty-fifth is uh, or June twenty-fourth, sorry, is the Nativity, the birth of John the Baptist now you gotta add another six months and where do you end up well of course you end up on December twenty-fourth, Christmas Eve and that is actually why Christmas Eve is the date it is is based upon that whole thing that I talked about the superstition that Jesus was crucified on the same date as the first day of creation and therefore he was also conceived on that date and since he was conceived on that date you add nine months that would mean he was born on december 25th so contrary to popular belief in modern america jesus the birth the date of christmas was not decided based upon saturnalia or um the birth of mithras and all these different either ideas that gets thrown around and pop um pop history and the truth is by the way by the way just as a note most of these figures were not born on december 25th but they do try to claim this but even still um that is not why jesus the birth of jesus is december 25th now as i should note though and so december 25th is um the birth of jesus so that's christmas right based upon this March 25th thing. well the other thing that God factored so then the next date that gets figured out from that is the naming and the circumcision of Jesus because under Jewish tradition you were circumcised on the eighth day so the eighth day from December 25th is January 1st and so that's when we celebrate the circumcision and naming of Jesus then you go a little bit farther and you arrive at January 6th. So January 6th is the um is the date that we celebrate Epiphany. That is the day when the Magi visited Jesus after he was born. So why is this? Well the reason is is because we in the Western Church are under the Gregorian calendar. Well, there are those who are under the Julian calendar. Now I can't really quite explain the difference on this. I'm not, so many of tr- people have tried to and I bleh, I don't quite get it. It's a mathematical formula and I, anyways. But because of this, these different calendars, in the Eastern Church, they celebrate they believed that Jesus was crucified on April 6th and therefore they celebrate Christmas on January 6th and it's for this reason that the Western Church celebrates Epiphany on the same date and so that those dates December 25th to January 6th those are the 12 days of Christmas now there is one more date that gets figured out because Jesus was crucified on December was born we celebrate Christmas on December 24th 40 days after is the dedication of Jesus at the temple and the purification of Mary and so as such on February 2nd we celebrate the purification and naming of the, purif- the purification of Mary and the dedication of Jesus. So this is why March 25th is such a significant date. And um, it's also why you see right there, you have the, the Lord of the Rings. The ring right there, the ring of power, the one ring to rule them all. The one ring to bind them, etc. Et the reason is, is because J.R.R. R. Tolkien, who wrote the Lord of the Rings books, um, was a very devout Roman Catholic. And he chose that the date that the ring was, was destroyed would be on the same date, traditional date, that Jesus was crucified, December 25th, and, or March 25th. And so the whole idea is that the ring was destroyed on March 25th, the same traditional date that sin, death, and the devil was destroyed, March 25th. That's why it's really cool date so um so we're talking a little bit here about the lectionary Um, so there are two lectionaries there is the one-year lectionary and the three-year lectionary the one-year lectionary is known as the historic lectionary and the three-year lectionary is known as the revised common lectionary so the three are lectionary, so you can see right there. There's a year A, which is basically pretty much just following the Gospel of Matthew. There's year B, which follows uh, the Gospel of Mark with occasional um, inclusions of the Gospel of John. And really, John is kind of scattered throughout all three years. And right now, we are in year B, series B. Series B. And then there's year C, which is follows the Gospel of Luke. Um, the distinctives of the three-year lectionary is you go through more scripture, um, you have, like, you'll have, like, the epistle lesson, you're just basically working through books of the Bible, so for example, right now on our Sunday mornings, we are working through the epistle of James, we just finished up the uh, the epistle to the Ephesians, uh, so we spent several weeks in that, um. The Old Testament reading is always determined by the Gospel lesson, um, so whatever is in the Gospel, whatever the uh, is the Old Testament lesson, go read the Gospel reading, and somehow it is going to connect. And sometimes it's not as easy to find. Some weeks it's not as easy to find the connection as others, but there is something there. It's, it's, sometimes it sometimes can be difficult, but it's there. Um, the one year lectionary, however, is doesn't focus on a single gospel it tends to be much more thematic and each week is following a theme of the season and everything and so you don't have it working through books of the bible the way that the three-year does but you do get through a lot of major events still and which one is better is i don't think there's one that really is better most churches now use the revised common lectionary um it was, and it's called the Revised Common Lectionary because it was written, it was designed in the ni- in the nineteen seventies, and so, I mean, it's had a little bit of tweaking since then. In fact, the one that we have in Luther's Service Book was revised in two thousand six, um, but for the most part, it's pretty similar. Uh, but two thousand, but the Revised Common Lectionary, the reason why it. Its strength is that a lot of modern-day resources um, come out of... So this is mostly strengths for the pastor, less so than the congregation. But for the pastor, um, he has a lot more modern resources to prepare his servants. The downside is is you don't have a lot of ancient resources. And that's where the historic lectionary is really wonderful, because the historic lectionary, pretty much every text that you have in there, every Sunday, you could find a sermon from a multitude of people from the past. You know, people like Martin Luther, um, some of the church fathers like St. John Chrysostom or whatever, you could find sermons that they had written because they followed a very similar lectionary to what the one-year lectionary is. And so... It could be helpful in that regards to preaching. So it's basically whether you want to dig into the com- the the old stuff or the new stuff, and there is advantage to both of it. It is advantageous to listen to the voices of those of the past, and so the one year lectionary allows for a pastor to do that and dig into those voices. Um, the one year lection- the three year lectionary, like I said, you re- you get to know a lot more scripture. Whereas the one-year script lectionary, because you're hearing the same text every single year on the same Sunday, you you don't know as much scripture, but the scripture that you do know, you know it better. So it's basically, it's a quantity versus quality um, type debate as to which one is better. Um, And the other thing is, is in terms of the themes of the day, the one-year lectionary is much more... A finely tuned, um, the gradual, the co- the prayer of the day, the collect, which you know, the prayer of the day, um, the hallelujah verse, the scripture readings, the hymn of the day, all of it is so finely tuned, so tightly woven, that it is very, very easy for a pastor to find the theme, and even you, as a congregate, as a lay lay person, you will see the themes because the words. These themes and words will come up over and over, especially during the seasons of Advent and Lent. Um, so, um, like I said, not many churches use the one-year. I like it. I actually do. Um, I kind of, if, if I, in an ideal situation, what I would love to do is be able to do three years on the one-year electionary, and then three years on the three-year. Like, three-one, three-year, one, three years. And so basically, so that way a congregation gets all of it. Um, Because I believe that there is strength to doing both lectionaries from time to time. So, the first season of the church year is Advent. So, Advent, the start of Advent is determined, well... Obviously, it's actually because of Christmas because there's exactly four Sundays in Advent. And the way to easily, the, the easiest way to figure it out is find the Sunday closest to St Andrew's Day. St. Andrew's Day is November 30th. And so that is when Advent is going to start. The word Advent means coming. And that echoes the theme of Christ has come, Christ is come, and Christ will come again. So the focus of Advent is that Christ has come, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, etc. Christ is come. He comes to us in the Word. He comes to us in the sacrament, in the Lord's baptism. He comes to us in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And so it's that confession but we also confess that Christ will come again on the last day and that is actually probably the more dominant theme of the season that we are focusing more on Christ's return than, on the coming of Christmas and so this is even like the advent wreath so you see a picture of a wreath right here and you see that three colors you got peace hope love joy just so you know, this peace, hope, and love thing—this is a very new invention, and people just did it for whatever reason. Um, joy, though, is of antiquity. This is an ancient practice, and so the whole—so the so ignore those words for now. The whole idea of the Advent wreath is think of it like a clock. So, in our church right now. The Christ candle, which is the big white candle that's right next to the lectern, is not lit. It was extinguished on Ascension Day. Ascension, actually, it's a sun, the Sunday after Ascension Day is when we extinguished it. But we extinguished it then, um, symbolizing the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. When Jesus ascended into heaven, the anticipation began for his return. And so when that candle is standing unlit, we are symbolically reminded that we are still in that same anticipation that began when Jesus ascended into heaven. But it's also, in the short term, we are beginning this anticipation for Christmas, the celebration of it. And so you see the wreath, and you see these four candles. And so on the first Sunday of Advent, we light candle number one. We light number two. It's it's ticking. It's basically because we're getting closer to Christmas. I mean, we said such day. I mean, so this year. So I gotta think of when Ascension Day was. I, I'm gonna to have to go look this set, up, look up this up on the calendar. So I looked it up. Um, the, this year, the Ascension was on May thirteenth. So from May thirteenth to December twenty fifth, twenty fourth, actually Christmas Eve, the evening of Christmas Eve, you are waiting. You are in anticipation for that candle to get relit. And those candles, as we get to, so when you get to that Sunday closest to November thirtieth, and this week, this year, it's going to be the last Sunday in November. We light that first candle, and we're going to light more. One, two, three, four. The clock ticking down, and then you get to Christmas Eve, and you, and after the gospel is read, and you hear that he is born. The candle is lit, symbolizing that greater anticipation of when he returns. And the third candle, you're going to notice, the third candle is rose. So there's the, the traditional color of Lent is violet. So violet is a is purple with a light amount of black. Um, purple is a color of repentance, and I'm going to talk about this more when we get to Lent. and When we get to talk about Lent. And so, but that's the traditional color. The traditional color for Christmas is white, as you can see in the center candle. If you mix white and violet, you get rose. And so this rose candle is lit on the third Sunday, which is the Sunday of rejoicing. The Sunday, or Gaudete Sunday. And so this candle is lit Letting you know that Christmas is within sight, so rejoice. In fact, the hymn, the hymn of the, the wonderful hymn, "Joy to the World," most appropriately belongs to this Sunday. Or rejoice, O pilgrim throng, or hark! A thrilling voice is sounding. That is the theme, the hymn of that day. So a couple, so a key verse that pretty well describes this time of this the season of the year is Matthew three verse two, and these are the words of John the Baptist who plays a major role in um, the Advent season and is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, a key hymn, Savior of the nations, come. And also I have to highlight Okamokami come, come Manuel. <coughs> Excuse me, still come kind of overcoming this cold. Okamokami manuel is seven verses. And these seven verses are are comprised of the great O Antiphons that are from the sixth century. Back in the sixth century they had began this tradition. That every single day from December 23rd, sorry, from December 17th to December 23rd, they would say one of those great o antiphons. And so they'd say one on December 17th, another one on December 18th, December 19th, because you're in the final days. You're in the final countdown to Christmas. And so these o antiphons made up the hymn. O come O come Emmanuel however one thing that is a little bit different is that verse 1 of O come O come Emmanuel is actually um, the is actually the last of the great O Antiphons so that's the only thing that is a little bit different from the hymn so the color blue, so there are some churches that do have blue for the color for the season of Advent. Uh, blue is a color that symbolizes joy. Oh, no, sorry, not joy, sorry. It symbolizes hope, sorry. So, um, the hopeful coming of Jesus. And so, it, it's kind of softer than violet. So people, Some people like blue because it differentiates from Advent from Lent. Because, yes, Advent... lent are both penitential seasons it's just that advent is not as intense as lent is um although advent has its intensity um, because it does focus on the fact that the world is going to come to an end so we continue on to and so the season of advent leads us into christmas and as i mentioned a little bit ago there's 12 days of christmas And this is actually why we say Happy Holidays. The word holidays is just a makeup of two words, holy and days. And the reason is, is, this was actually started by Christians. Because these are the holidays that happen within a very short span of time. So, you have the commemoration of Adam and Eve on December 19th. Which, by the way, this is why Christmas trees became a thing because originally it was a christmas trees they were adam and eve trees um it's commemoration commemorating what happened in the garden that's why fruits play such a prominent role in it um, especially apples and then you kind of combined in the whole story of the jesse trees and so it kind of it's a it's a merging of multiple traditions and it kind of because christmas is as close it kind of found its way over to christmas it's that Um, but anyway, so you got Adam and Eve, you have St. Thomas, you have Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, you have the feast of St. Stephen, you know, King Marcellus went to town on the feast of Stephen, um, you have St. John, you have Holy Innocence, um, you have David, the commemoration of David, who is the, um, you know, King David, who. If you watch any of my daily devotions, they talk about him a lot. We've been reading a lot about him, and then there's the circumcision of naming of Jesus on January first, and then you have Epiphany on January sixth. So they decided they could say, "Happy holidays," or they could say, "Get ready, Happy Adam commemoration of Adam and Eve. Happy Happy ca- a- commemoration of Saint Thomas." Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas Day uh, Happy Feast of Stephen Happy St. John Happy Holy Feast of Innocence Happy of Commemoration of David Happy Circumcision of G- Naming of Jesus And Happy Epiphany You know, I think Happy Holidays is a lot easier Because it's going to take you a good two minutes Just to say all that every time It's like, it's like hey, hey man, I got stuff to do Can you just say Happy Holidays already? Get over it Right? so that's where the whole thing comes from. So, in in our own culture, it actually is advantageous because we have Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, all within a short time period. And that's, I growing up, that's how I always understood. That that's why we said Happy Holidays. And don't if somebody ever says to you Happy Holidays, you say you know what, you are right. It is a holy day blessed by our God above. Don't get offended. Don't get upset. Don't get angry. Point people to Jesus. All right. So the key verse um, for the season is is John one verse one and fourteen, uh, which is in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Um, the the color of the season is white, but the color for Christmas Day. Is, can be gold if somebody wants to. Um, there's also different colors for, like, especially um, Feast of Stephen and the Holy Innocence, The color is red because that's the color for martyrs. So, um, but otherwise, generally the color for the season is white. Then there is comes the season after Epiphany. So, Epiphany starts on January 6th, um, and then um, it ends on Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras, which is the day before Ash Wednesday, which is also National Pancake Day. It's called Fat Tuesday, National Pancake Day, or whatever, which is really popular, especially amongst Roman Catholics, um, because the tradition of giving up something for Lent. And so, people give up, whatever and so the day before they kind of tend to indulge themselves in whatever it is they're giving up and so that's why it has come to become named fat tuesday so the season of epiphany the key days that stand out is the baptism of our lord which is always the sunday after epiphany and then transfiguration sunday which is the last sunday before lent and the reason why transfiguration marks itself as the end of the epiphany season and to getting us ready for Lent, it's because, and I think it's in the Gospel of Luke, that after Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, when he was on the way down, it says at one point that he set his face towards Jerusalem. In other words, towards the cross. And so we as a church... After Transfiguration has got done, we are now setting our faces towards the cross and getting ourselves ready for Lent, Good Friday, Easter, etc etc. Um, a key verse is John 2 verse 11. Um, this comes from the first miracle of Jesus because and the reason I say this is a key verse is because the season of epiphany is about the revelation of Jesus as the Christ. And so um, John 2, verse 11, it says that this was the first of his signs that he did manifesting his glory. And by the way, the wedding at Cana is included as one of the readings in um, the season after Epiphany, usually. Um, A hymn that also goes very well with this is Songs of Thankfulness and Praise. And I say this is because at the end of every verse, you say, God in man made manifest. That sl- that phrase pretty much summarizes the entire point of the Epiphany season. The color is green. Uh, green symbolizes growth, and so it symbolizes our gr- the growth of Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, the growing revelation of who He is, and so a lot of focus on His early ministry. Now, one thing that is unique in the one-year lectionary, and to some degree is still reflected in the um, three-year lectionary sometimes, is what is known as pre-Lent. So pre-Lent has these days called Septuagesima, Sexagesima, Quinquagesima, and then there's Shro Tuesday. And a Transfiguration Sunday is actually what begins pre-Lent. Um... And so septuagesima means 70 days, sexagesima is 60 days Quinquagesima is 50 days And the season of Lent um, The traditional name for Lent Was actually quadragesima Which means the 40 days Um, The word Lent Just means spring, it's kind of a boring Word when you realize it Um, And actually I kind of prefer quadragesima I wish we would have stuck with it But I'm not, I don't think I have the, the ability to curve an entire culture. Uh, so, but anyways, the whole idea of this season is it is actually starting to get you really ready for Lent. Um, and I know a lot of, t- I think it's some of the readings. Um, in the one year, in the three year lecture. year, this kind of gets reflected, especially um, in this, the the Matthew series and series A because usually the last Sundays leading into Lent tend to be coming from uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it is very heavy in the law. Um, it That doesn't come through as strongly as in the Mark year or the Luke year. But you definitely hear it in Matthew. But the, the, se- the, the penitential theme begins to start coming through during the season, of that pre-Lenten season. So... Lent begins uh, on with Ash Wednesday. The color is violet. Violet symbolizes um, it symbolizes death. It symbolizes repentance. It symbolizes royalty, and the reason for this is it goes back to how violet, how the color violet was discovered, or the color purple was discovered. Um, So the color purple was discovered on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. There was a dog who, uh, an owner had seen his dog, and his dog's jaws were covered in this stuff, this purple stuff. And so this is the first time that they'd seen the color purple. Which probably they'd seen it before, but this kind of is one of those micro-evolution things, that there was a time where our eyes could not detect purple. And so... But eventually, when we arrived at that point, he saw it coming down his jaws, and he tried to figure out what it was. Well, he saw that the dog was chewing on these snails and mollusks. And it's from that that they started to make the dye. And still, to this day, if you want to get what is a true teary and purple dye, you still have to get it from the the blood of snail and mollusk. And it's extremely expensive dye. You can look it up online. It's pretty spendly, spendy. And the reason, and because it's spendy, the only people that wear true Tyrian purple clothing tend to be very wealthy. And in the ancient world, the only people that wore purple were royalty, nobility. Um, you had to have extreme wealth. And so that's why purple symbolizes royalty. Jesus is our king. Uh, but because something has to die for that purple to be made, it symbolizes sacrifice. And therefore calls us to repentance, to remind us of our king who sacrificed himself for our sins. And so during the season of Lent, we fast, we pray, we give. And this is very reflective of the primary re- the gospel lesson on Ash Wednesday. In Ash Wednesday... You will read this reading where it talks about um, fasting, it talks about prayer, it talks about almsgiving. And so this is actually what you're supposed to do during the season of Lent. Is So you give up something. This is actually a good thing to do. You don't have to do it, but you can if you wish. You could give up something during the season of Lent. So, like, let's, for example, and so the older traditions is you'd give up meals. So some people would give up food altogether. But let's say you just gave up supper for, one, for the entire season of Lent, all 40 days. So what you would do is the time that you would normally spend eating your meal and preparing your meal, which, by the way, when you combine the time you take to prepare it, the combine the time you take to eat it, It's quite a bit of time. And so that time that you would normally have been doing that, you would instead spend it in prayer, in scripture, singing hymns, whatever. You would be spending it with your Lord. You would be choosing to not live on bread alone, but on the very words that come from the mouth of God. And so fasting leads to prayer. And now the thing is, is when you don't eat a meal you're saving money what do you do with that money that you save do you pocket yourself and go buy something else no the money that you save you send it off to those who do not have so much food and so this is almsgiving so this is the reading that is a traditional reading for Ash Wednesday it comes out of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew I believe it's either chapter 6 or 7 uh, very, very much yes, uh, very, very much reflects this tradition. So Matthew six, um, it's forty days. The season of Lent is forty days. It does not include Sundays. Sundays are Little Easters, and so therefore they are not considered part of Lent. Lent has essentially two seasons. It's kind of made up of two seasons, and the reason I say this is because the themes. Oh, the first half of Lent is different from this last half. The first half of Lent is very penitential. It's very focusing, much focusing upon our sinfulness, um, our rebellion of God, and the law hits hard. This is the time of the year that you will, you're going to feel the brunt of your sin. All right? Um, And so... But then you get to Laetare La Sunday, which is um, is a Sunday of rejoicing. So, you know, in Advent, we had Gaudete Sunday. That's a Sunday of rejoicing. Laetare is a Sunday of rejoicing during the season of Lent. And again, the color is rose. And the reason it's rose, again, is white is the color for Easter. Violet is the color for Lent. You mix the two, you get rose. And so it's letting you know that we are getting closer To the season. um, Getting closer to Easter. And so especially if you gave up for something for Lent. If you're fasting in any way. It's letting you know we're almost there. And I should actually highlight something here. Um, Traditionally the church has not allowed. For weddings. In particular. During the season of Advent and Lent. And the reason is because of the penitential nature of this season. And weddings are joyful in nature. And that joyfulness really disrupts the tone that the Lenten and Advent season brings. There was one exception to this rule. There was one Sunday in Lent and one season in Sunday in Advent you were allowed to get married. In Advent, it was Gaudete. In Lent, it was La Torre Sunday. And that's because that's that moment that you could breathe. And by the way, one of the things in Lent is there's no flowers in the altar. No flowers in the chancel anywhere. Um, But on La Torre Sunday, they can put out flowers. Um, There is no very limited preludes and postludes during the season. Um, And so La Torre, and up to La Torre Sunday, um, you still have the offering music. But on Lent 4, the Sunday of rejoicing, this is kind of, it's kind of like the linchpin of the season. It's the middle, and it's called rejoicing because the text tends to be joyful um, compared to the rest of the Lenten season. Um, in the one-year lectionary, the traditional reading is uh, taken from, is the feeding of the 5,000, which is, is Jesus giving them rest. And, during the season of Lent, you need rest, and so you're getting that that breather, all right. In the in the um, three-year lectionary, we fought. They use um, John three sixteen, which you have for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, and you hear that wonderful hymn. God loved the world so that He gave such a joyful hymn. It's giving you that little bit of breath. To remind you of why we go through this journey. So we may draw closer to him. Draw closer to our Lord. And so, and the thing is, here's the deal. is a season of Lent. One of the big themes is it's preparing you also to die. And so that's why you have this season of repentance. This season of repentance. It's getting you ready for die. But it is giving you this breather. And then you get to the seat the fifth Sunday in Lent. The fifth Sunday of Lent is what is known as Passion Sunday. And it begins Passion Tide. This is when the crosses traditionally are draped in black or violet. Um some will drape it in the color of the of the color of the Sunday. Some will just call drape it in black. We drape it in black because I didn't want to fuss with extra um cloths or whatever i just want to make it simple um and it remains draped for a while the offering music disappears the glory of Patry, you know the glory beat of <sighs> sorry the glory be of the father and the son etc etc that is dropped out we don't say that in the invocation or when we do the psalms and by the way, speaking of which, one of the things you have in the season of Lent is you don't have um, doxologies in the prayers, or you try not to. It's hard to remember this as a pastor, so if it doesn't always happen, that's because a pastor lost track of it. Um, but you'd say, through Jesus Christ our Lord, amen. Instead of, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, et cetera, et cetera. Um, amen. So you'll hear that, you'll just go, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And you do that with all of the prayers. It's just kind of challenging to keep your eyes open and your to catch it always. Um, you also don't have doxologies at the end of hymns. You know, if you look in the Lutheran service book, the Lutheran hymnal, there's a triangle at the end of several hymns on the last verse. That is a Trinitarian doxology. Those disappear during the season of Lent. Um, alleluia's. We don't say alleluia's. We put those away. All of this is a way to capture, more so, the penitential nature, the somber nature of the season. And like I said, on Passion Sunday, that fifth Sunday in Lent, the season intensifies. And then, the following Sunday is Palm Sunday, which begins with a, a reading of John chapter... um john chapter 12 which is the triumphal entry and so it actually traditionally begins at the front of the church now if your church is fully traditional it is a fully traditional practice this will actually be a full congregational processional so the whole congregation is outside of the church and they're having palm branches in their hands and the pastor will say those words and then they will, once they've the, heard that scripture, they will go in triumphantly together singing, All oh, glory, Lord, and honor, do you redeem a king, etc., oh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So you go in and joyful, and you go to the last pew, which is really terrifying for Lutherans because they have their pew. Uh, but you're not going to go to your pew, you're going to go to the last pew. You fill up to the front. And so you get up to the. We go up to the altar. The pastor goes up to the altar and he waits for the everyone to arrive at their seats. He waits for the hymn to conclude, and when the hymn concludes, he pauses for a moment for silence, and he prays another prayer. And this is symbolizing the transition from at from the um, the contrast of jesus triumphantly riding on the donkey into jerusalem and him carrying the cross to golgotha at the end of the week and so then the pastor reads the scriptures and the gospel lesson for this sunday will be um is going to be the passion account from either matthew mark or luke if you're in the one year series it's always matthew In the three-year series, it's whatever year you're on. So this year, this coming um, April, um, we would read from the Gospel of Luke. And there is also a tradition, while this is being read, that the pastor, when he gets to the part where it says that Jesus has died or he breathed his last breath, whatever, the pastor will stop. Turn towards the cross, reverence the cro- the altar, bow towards the altar turn back and finish the reading. And this is the, again to get you to focus on those words that he died to th- really ring in to think about it. When the reading is done, there is a tradition of if you have a ch- if you have bells in the church to ring the bell 33 times. You do it as a toll. Dong. Dong. 33 years for the estimated years that Jesus lived by, was a, had lived up to the crucifixion on earth and so the service the hymn of the day is Lamb Goes On Complaining Forth um, very much echoing the theme of it that he was riding into Jerusalem to present himself as the Lamb of Sacrifice um, and the last hymn traditionally is ride right on ride right on in majesty which carries that um palm sunday theme of the triumphal entry but the word it says ride on in lowly pomp to die it's not letting you forget what we're leaving and when the church the service comes to an end it's complete silence you walk out in silence there is no music, um, and by the way, the bells when they ring after the um, those thirty three times they will not ring again until Holy Saturday, Monday Thursday service. So my so there are by the way there is Holy Monday there's Holy Tuesday and there's Holy Wednesday. Um, during the course of Holy Monday Tuesday and Wednesday, they will read from Matthew Mark or Luke and or Luke. Uh, So basically the two Gospels, the two of those Gospels that did not get read on Sunday are traditionally read on those days. And the whole idea is, is that actually during the course of Holy Week, you will have read from all four Gospels. Um, Because John is the one that is read on Good Friday. If you don't come to every day of the week, one of the nice things is, is that at the minimum... If you come to Palm Sunday, and you come to Good Friday, on Palm Sunday, you will have heard a gospel account from one of the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're called that because there's so many similarities between them. So you will have read from one of the synoptics, and at the end of the week on Good Friday, you will have heard from John. It's to help you get the fuller view and understanding of what happened. Because there are events that happen in John That are not recorded in Luke. There are things that are recorded in Luke. That are not recorded in John. And they are important to know both of them. The gospel writers spent a lot of time. On the crucifixion. And so therefore so should we. And so. uh, And so Holy Week ends. You get the Maundy Thursday. Thursday is Maundy Thursday. Or Mandata. Which means mandate or command. Because it's the day that he commanded that they love him one another as the, he loved them um he there's also the you also read about the passover meal um and you also read and talk about the lord's supper which was commanded to do this as often as you do this do this in remembrance of me and so that's why it's called mandate Mandata, or mondi thursday um this is kind of a trimmed down service. There's not a lot to it. Um, the most distinctive thing that happens in it. Of course you have communion. But the most distinctive thing that happens. Is at the very end. Um, when the the altar is stripped. The pyramids. Everything is stripped bare in the ch- chancel. And it's to remind you of when Christ was stripped bare. On the cross. And the pastor will read. Or somebody will read, or chant, or sing, or whatever Psalm 22. Sometimes this will be read after the stripping. Sometimes this will be read while it is being stripped. And this is—it's um, a very sombering moment. And as you see that sh- the altar completely bare, it's reminiscent. It reminds you of the fact that Jesus was stripped. Bear, but it's also a reminder that one day you will be stripped of everything. But one of the, the great comfort is, is in that day when you, or have to leave everything behind on the moment of your death. This is how Lent is preparing you to die to die well. It's a reminder that when you have nothing, you will have Christ. Christ was abandoned on the cross, and left had nothing, so that you wouldn't be. Alright, so, and then you have Good Friday. And by the way, this is, I should actually, this is all, by the way, part of Holy Week. And so you hear of all this. This is part of what is known as the Holy Triduum. The Holy Triduum is Monday, Thursday, Good Friday. Um, Good Friday, there are three traditional um, services with it. There is what is known as, um, there is what is known as, Um, The Stations of the Cross This is more common amongst Roman Catholics But there are Lutheranized versions of this Um, There is also what is known as the Chief Service This is the longer of the services But it's a very powerful one Especially at the end when you get to what is known as the Reproaches Um, And then there is what is known as the, um, the Tenebrae Service And the Tenebrae Service is the one where the candles get extinguished. It gets darker and darker, and then there is a loud bang at the end, a loud sound, and this is symbolizing the ceiling of the tomb or the earthquake when Jesus was on the cross, and um, and so and the color on that day is black. Um, it's a like I said, it's a very powerful service, and one of the things that happens during the service that's really unique is when the the the, the there is a cross that we typically do is there's all these crosses are draped in black right um in our church the big wall cross the light is off on it and we keep it off um but there's this one that's going to be that is leaning against the altar and during the service there's a point where we say behold the life-giving cross behold the life-giving cross we hold the life-driven cross, and we slowly strip it. And then at one point, we stand it up. And we stand it up as you hear the hymn that is... Um, you hear the hymn that go, that is... It's one of... A, it's a really, really good... Um, good Friday hymn. And I can't think of the name of it. Oh... Uh, I was stumped when we did this in person, but the hymn is unique in the Lenten season because it's one of the th- it's one of only two Lenten hymns that have um, a doxology, a Trinitarian doxology in it, and we stand for that to remember. It's kind of a even in the midst of this somberness of Lent, of Good Friday, it is to remind us that ultimately the death of Jesus is our victory he had victory over sin death and the devil and that victory is ours and so there it, it, the hymn um, is oddly triumphant and victorious and it stands out in the day of Good Friday um, especially when you have hymns like stricken and Smitten, and afflicted um, oh sacred head now wounded oh dearest Jesus, what law hast thou broken I mean these powerful gut-wrenching hymns, this one stands out as being triumphant, and it's to remind you that this there is triumph in the cross. So and then, after Holy Saturday, Good Friday is Holy Saturday. Now the and that's when you have the Easter vigil, which is the oldest service the church has. Um, it is of antiquity. I mean, it goes back probably to the first century. Um. Now traditionally, um. You know churches will have this at normal times. But the originally the, the um, Easter Vigil ha- happened on at like midnight. And it would last for three hours. Because it is a long service. Uh, we typically when we do it we trim it down significantly. Um, we don't read all the scriptures. We don't do full baptisms. We don't do full confirmation service. Um, all that stuff that is actually in that liturgy. It is a long service. Um but it, it, that's why it's called a vigil. It's a vigil. You're keeping watch for the celebration of Easter. Um, we have done this sometimes where we start out the, tr- the service in black because the color for Holy Saturday is black because you're still in that Good Friday vibe. And then halfway through the service, there's a point. And by the way, one of the things is so, you know, I talked about in Good Friday, the candles are slowly getting extinguished. So it's getting darker and darker and darker. On East, on the Easter Vigil, it's the opposite. Those palm branches that you were waving on Palm Sunday, there's a tradition that on the Easter Vigil, you burn those palm branches. You burn them, and from that fire, you light the Christ a new Christ candle. And the church and all the people light their own individual candles, and they all process into the sanctuary which is in pitch darkness. From the night before. And the church during the course of the service gets brighter and brighter and brighter. Until you get to the, you finally hear the phrase for the first time. Alleluia. Christ is risen. And they respond in joy. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. And this is where that fasting, that intensification of Lent, all of that stuff being restrained comes and pays it off you felt it you've been weighed down and then you get to that point and all of a sudden the lights if you have the the candles are all lit up or the the all the candles are lit the lights are turned on it is bright and the bells are ringing for joy because of the celebration has begun christ has risen from the dead he has defeated death. And so the victory begins. And there is a tradition that the the sermon, by the way, is very short. You read the homily is St. John Chrysostom. And that is it's it's basically like only a couple paragraphs. It's a wonderful, wonderful sermon. And it's like Um Death is defeated, Death has been conquered, death has been squashed. Uh, it's, it's just a wonderful sermon. So in the Lutheran Church, in, America, in the American Church, we did not take, oh, take very well to these Easter vigils, these late-night services. And as such, we started the sunrise service. So instead of staying up late, we just get up really early. So at 6.30 in the morning, there, the old tradition was actually you would start in a cemetery... Uh, not many churches are actually in cemeteries anymore. I have cemeteries attached to them. So what you do is you start. You start at the back of the church. You start. You come to the church in the dark, and the pat. And so what I've kind of done this tradition is we started there in the sanctuary from the back while the church is all darkened, and um, you go through the committal liturgy, the liturgy that you hear at gravesides. Um, as a reminder that, you know, that these people, this is why it's so powerful in a cemetery, a reminder that these people who are in these graves, whether they've been dead for a couple weeks or they've been dead for over a hundred years, they died in Christ. And because Christ has risen from the dead, because of what we celebrate on Easter, all of these people will rise. These people that you've never met, you've only heard stories of them you may not even have heard a story of them but they will rise and so um and so the church and and the way we've done it on easter sunday is we get to a point we confess the apostles creed and we say and on the third day he rose from the dead all the lights just flip on and it's kind of cool to do it's kind of fun um and to keep to hit like yeah he rose from the dead and you belt out hymns like, this is the feast. Because, you know, this is the feast. Glory to Chelsea." You don't sing that during Lent. Because those are joyful hymns. Those are doxology, words of praise. We've held, we packed that away. But you get to Easter, you say, This is the feast of victory. As you've restrained that for those 40 days, the joy bursts forth. And there's so many alleluias. It is such a wondrous day. And it's an exhausting service. And that's a good thing you of you exhaust your energy lifting your God in praise and knowing what he has done for you. So there are 50 days to Easter. Um, it starts on Easter Sunday and ends at Pentecost. Um, the 40th day is Ascension. One of the, Ascension is a very important day in the church year, but sadly it has been lost um, due to the fact that it always lands on a Thursday. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, um, Ascension Day is the day that the candle is extinguished. Uh, The Christ candle is extinguished and it's not lit again until Christmas. Um, We'll talk about Pentecost in a little bit here. Um, The traditional color for Easter is white, which symbolizes purity. Same reason it is white for Christmas. Um, It symbolizes the purity of Christ and the purity, the innocence, the forgiveness that we receive in him. Um, the, the color for Easter Sunday itself is gold to symbolize the riches of our king um, the season after the sea, the day of Pentecost is red to symbolize the fire of the Holy Spirit um, that comes down on Pentecost um, but Pentecost itself the season is green and that's the season in we're, we're in right now um, and it goes from the day after Pentecost, And it goes all the way to the season of Advent. Um, A few key days, they're kind of scattered around. Trinity Sunday is the first Sunday after Pentecost. That color is white. Um, There's the Nativity of John the Baptist. That's June 24th. Michael Mass, or St. Michael and All Angels, is September 29th. Um, That's a white white day. Um, That's where you're going to focus on the angels. Uh, Reformation Day is re- October 31st. All Saints' Day is November 1st. November 1st, and then you have Christ the King Sunday, which is the last Sunday of the church year, um, and that's also a white Sunday. Um, all Saints' Day is a commemoration of all those who have um, died in the died for the faith, but it's kind of been expanded to remember all Christians who died in the faith. And there's a remembrance of those who died in the last year. And after you hear a a name, you ring a bell after each name. um, So you can focus and really think about it. I know this year we're going to have probably a pretty sizable list, um, given how many funerals we've had of recent. Um, Reformation is to remember when um, Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the the door in Wittenberg. Um, and then Christ the King Sunday was a day that was established in the 1920s in the midst of so much political corruption around the world it was to remind us as we are dealing with corrupt rulers that we do have a good king Christ the King and we focus on our our eternal everlasting king as we struggle with the deeds and the actions of our earthly rulers Um, so key hymns Um, How shall they hear who have not heard? Um, The color green is the color of the season because it's basically the season of the church. It's about the growth of the church. It's about the mission of the church, of spreading the gospel. That's why this hymn works really well because that's our job. We're spreading the word of the gospel. The end of the season, the hymns that go with it is for all the saints um, and also wake awake for night is flying because basically... The month of November, the color um and it actually fits very well with this the earthly season at least in the northern hemisphere it does um, when the leaves are starting to turn brown the the fields are harvested so it's just brown and black and gray everything just looks dead everywhere around you um, it's to remind you of God's harvest that he's coming on the last day and so. The season after Pentecost ends, the church year ends very similar to the way it begins in Advent. It's about Christ's return. It's about the end of the world. That's the focus at the end of the year. It's his focus on Advent. So, there you go. I <clears> know <throat> that was a lot on the church year. Uh, next week, I'm going to try to come back and record a video where we will talk about um hymns we're going to talk about preaching because that's what point we are still in the service so blessings to you in jesus name amen